Our primary passage this morning is in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33, I'd ask you to put a marker in there if you can. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this season of worship. We thank you that we can come into your presence and glorify your name. And when we look at this passage in Deuteronomy, where Moses is at the end of his life, has led your people faithfully, and we see these words of blessing, it stirs our soul. As to your goodness, your faithfulness to your people. Help us to see it. Speak through me as your servant, Lord, and bless the hearts and minds of those who are here this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking at the last words of Moses uh, relatively shortly. These are the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel before he climbed up Mount Nebo and looked for one last time upon the land that the God was promising to the people of Israel. God gave him that final look. And it's kind of like John the Baptist being the last of the prophets before Christ. You get one last view of the Old Testament era. One last view of what God has promised He will do and then the promise is just on the cusp. It's just right there as it's going to be unfolded in Joshua coming into the land with the people and taking it by God's commission. But here we see Moses looking upon the land but not being allowed in it. And as he speaks to the people, he blesses them. They have followed God's leading in the wilderness for 40 years, learning to trust him. This was essential for the task before them. Yet Moses is reminding the people and us that you are blessed because of God's merciful provision and protection. Not because of your importance, but because of God's importance. Moses is not saying in any way that you are not valued by God. God is very long-suffering with us. He cares for us deeply. That's not what he's saying. He's addressing the importance of God in this relationship. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 3 and look at verses 7 through 10. Matthew 3, 7 through 10. John the Baptist is addressing a similar matter here regarding the Pharisees and Sadducees who believed that they were important because they were Abraham's descendants. They believe that as Abraham's descendants, his merit, Abraham's merit as their predecessor, secured God's blessing upon them, regardless of what they did, not only in this life, but in the life to come. In verses 8 through 9, John tells these religious leaders, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What is important here is not so much that you are of of, uh, Abraham's physical lineage, but that you are of his spiritual lineage. 
that you love God and that you have faith in God as he does. And that serves as the evidence of God's spirit at work in you. That's what John is getting at as significant here. Consider the, uh, another, one more passage before we get back to Deuteronomy. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18 through 20. These tie together. In Romans 1, 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Believe it or not, that's what the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing in John the Baptist's day. They were suppressing the truth of God's word with their own wicked and and sinful understanding of it. So here we have verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Verse 18 is simply a statement of fact. That godless and wicked people suppress the truth, exalting their wickedness above God's righteousness. We see this taking place in our country today, uh, whether these wicked people claim to be religious or irreligious. They exalt their philosophical or religious ideals above the Word of God, trying to suppress God's Word with their own doctrine, which justifies, gives license to their immoral conduct, which contributes to the cursing of our country and and to death. You can look at the history books and see this pattern. This is nothing new. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. But look carefully at verses 19 through 20. What may be known about God is plain to them and to us. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, since God is spirit and we cannot see him as he's in action, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Well, how? Being understood from what God has made so that men, all people, are without excuse A truly repentant life of a believer in Christ Jesus reveals the invisible work of God in your soul, renewing your mind, transforming your life as you proclaim God's righteousness and you seek to live that righteous life. Your life is no longer your own. You recognize that it belongs to God and you live for Him. You could see it when a person repents and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ and can cry out honestly, Abba, Father, that their life is totally transformed. And you look at that and you ask, well, how? Well, I believe on Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in that person who is born again. What is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit that that you would see? The love of God. The love of Christ. If God's love is at work in you, what a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms of God. Let's look now at our main passage. Deuteronomy 33, verses 27 through 29b. 
Moses declares the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, destroy him. So Israel will live in safety alone. Jacob's spring is secure in a land of grain and new wine where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. One of my favorite, my family's favorite movies is uh, in the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. It's called The Fellowship of the Ring. It's an epic story created by J.R. Tolkien, which takes place on Middle-earth. The way the story unfolds is that there's a wicked and evil lord named Sauron who seeks to subject everybody to slavery. He is bent on conquest and wants to conquer all of the inhabitants of Middle-earth. That would include men, dwarves, elves, ents, and hobbits. And the first war that he fought, he lost. And one of the means of his power is a gold ring. It looks like a gold ring you could put on your finger. And it, it changes in size to fit whatever finger it goes on. It's kind of a magical, powerful ring. And the way the ring operates is that it exploits the desires of men and of dwarves and even of elves. It exploits their desire, their hunger for power and glory and subjects them through that process. Kind of like how Satan, you know, plays upon the desires and hearts of of us. When we seek our own power or our own glory, he can exploit that and bring us under his power. That's the whole point of rebellion uh, regarding sin. Anyway, the hobbits are, are more gentle creatures. They they like fun and fellowship and food, basically. They're not into glory and fighting and all this other stuff. They're more into community. And so the one who has this ring, is, his name is Frodo, and, and these hobbits are only little guys. They're, they're like a pre-teenager in size. And he, see, he finds this ring. His uncle had, had left it for him, and a, a, a wizard Gandalf comes up and on the scene and he tells him, you've got to get that out of the Shire, out of your community and bring it to Lord Elrond, who is king of the elves. And then he will know what to do with it. And so there's adventure and drama as, as Frodo and Sam and, and uh, some others who are our little hobbits are on this journey, on this quest to bring the ring to uh, Lord Elrond. And they finally do. Well, Elrond takes one look at it and says, it can't stay here, it has to be destroyed. And he summons a a council where the leaders of men, the leaders of dwarves, the leaders of elves uh, come forth and he explains the situation that this ring must be destroyed. The only problem is, the only way the ring can be destroyed is it has to be taken back to the place from which it was formed, which is the fires of Mount Doom, which is right in the heart of of Sauron's kingdom. And this breaks out in argument. The men are are arguing with each other and and the the dwarves are arguing with the elves. They're, They're looking at the situation saying, this is an impossible task. There's no way that this can take place. There's no way that this can happen. Even if we had the mightiest of armies, we could not march into the heart of Mordor 
to Mount Doom in order to accomplish this task. And while they are fighting and arguing over what to do with the ring and, and who should take it and, and how to proceed, little Frodo, the smallest of the group, the humblest of the group, proclaims, I will take it. I will take the ring. And as he does, two of the men offer their sword and protection for Frodo on this quest. An elf offers his bow and protection and a dwarf offers his battle axe to protect Frodo in this quest. Well, the wizard Gandalf offers his power and expertise, his guidance, and you also have the other three hobbits. They don't want to be left out of the whole thing, so they, they chime in that they want to be part of this quest as well. And you have it. And, and as this dramatic swearing of allegiance takes place, the elf leader Elrond says, Nine companions, so be it. This shall be the fellowship of the ring. So what is their task as the fellowship of the ring? As we've been talking, their task is basically to destroy evil. This ring symbolizes power, the lust for power. It symbolizes greed and all that and covetousness and all that goes into that, wanting that which is not yours. And they are called to destroy it without it destroying them. I wonder sometimes, as the word ring sounds like the word rain, whether Tolkien is using that as a word play regarding Hitler's Germany as he was reflecting on World War II when he wrote this. When Hitler rose to power and all the evil and wickedness that came with him. The potential reign of Germany over the whole world. And that it has to be defeated. It has to be overcome. Either way, success depends on the strength of the fellowship. On the strength of those who are with you in any venture. So when you think of fellowship in the church, what fills your thoughts? <laughs> Is it that dramatic? Do you think of the task of fighting against evil, laboring to destroy it as soldiers of the Lord? Do you think of the spiritual warfare that goes on every day and asking the Lord to defeat the evil that tries to take ownership of your heart, that battles against your will and the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you yield yourself to that work of the Holy Spirit, asking Him to put whatever sin that you're struggling with to death? Do you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted in other lands for their faith? Do you think of that fellowship? Or do you think of a fellowship meal or gathering together in fellowship for a celebration or for worship as we're doing now? I want you to understand that there's nothing wrong with that kind of thinking as long as you don't dismiss the former. You might be thinking destroying evil pastor is an insurmountable task that we cannot accomplish. It's crazy to even think that way. Yes, so evil looks to us like the giant warrior Goliath. And we like the little young teenager David. 
yet did he shrink back from his task when all others did. He did not because of what? Because his faith was not in himself. It wasn't in his sling. It wasn't in his stone. His faith was in the Lord. And he understood that the important person in that fellowship, in that venture, was God, not him. He was simply the vessel through whom God worked to bring down the power of evil. Now we know that David represents Christ, he foreshadows Christ, and Goliath represents the devil and his kingdom. But the point is, is that God brought down the power of evil through Christ Jesus, and we'll get to that in a bit. If God Almighty is with us, should we fear? Should we shrink back or press forward? Look at Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. Moses says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, Destroy him. Look carefully at what Moses says here. He says, The eternal God is your refuge. He doesn't simply say, God is your refuge and strength. A wonderful help in times of trouble. He doesn't say that. He says, your, the eternal God is your refuge. You know, kingdoms in this world are a scary thing. When somebody rises to power and they're a dictator, when, when we have somebody in North Korea shooting an ICBM up in the sky that has the potential to hit our, planet, our, our country over here, and uh, we try and throw back, a, a, show them a test of strength as well, that we're, we're ready for them, that still bothers you thinking that there are leaders in this world who have that kind of power at their disposal. And the question is, are they smart enough, are they wise enough and prudent enough not to use it, knowing what what it will unleash? We think about things like that. And yet, in time, that leader will be no more. And the question will be, who will come after him? A kingdom may last for 40, 50 years, maybe even 100 years, but then it will be no more and what will come after it? God's kingdom lasts how long? It is forever. The kingdoms of this world will endure and truly they can be scary. They can be like the beasts of Daniel consuming everything in their path unless you bow and worship them. But they do not last. They do not endure. God's kingdom lasts forever. Moses knows this and so he presents this. The eternal God is your refuge. We're so distracted by temporal things that matter very little in the grand scheme of life that we need to refocus our attention on God who is everlasting. And in His arms, He talks about how long? Everlasting arms. He picks you up. Uh, if you've ever had, your, you and your kids are out there you know, raking up leaves, eventually you get to the point where you have to pick them up. You know, when your arms go underneath, you try and grab as many as you can, stuff them in the lawn bag for disposal or put them on the burn pile, what have you. But you see that picking up process. When he talks about his, his everlasting arms being underneath, this is God bearing us up. This is God providing for us, taking care of us. It's an image of how he protects us and preserves us. In the wilderness, God removed all the distractions from his people. 
Remember at one point they were so mad because in Egypt they at least had, they were slaves, but at least they had leeks and onions and nice vegetables, you know. Out here we have nothing but this stinking manna and water. Bread and water, isn't that what you give to prisoners, you know? (laughs) So they were not happy, but God was removing all distractions. Every delight that you delight in. And it's just a base course meal. Later on, he did give them meat through quail and so forth. But he provided for them. God was a pillar of cloud in the day to keep them from getting burned by the sun. He was a pillar of of, of fire at night to light their way and give them warmth. God provided manna, as I've already said, for them in the wilderness, water and quail meat. Uh, Their clothes did not wear out. And their feet did not swell. You think, well, why should their feet swell? Well, they were walking in the desert. Have you ever walked on hot sand before? It's not fun. Hopefully you have good enough shoes to to serve as a barrier. But all the walking they did, their feet did not swell. In other words, they stayed in good health throughout the journey. That's God's blessing. That's God's provision. Please understand here, it's not the promised land that will be their refuge. God is our refuge and strength. The question then is, is the eternal God your refuge? Is the eternal God your refuge? Is God the one in whom you ultimately place your trust to preserve your life and guide you through this life? Or are you looking elsewhere? Be honest with your heart. The reality of where you stand will be made known when you stand before the Lord of glory. You can conceal it. You can hide it in this life. You can pretend, but when you stand before the Lord of glory, everything that was hidden will be made known. Is God your eternal refuge? Underneath are the everlasting arms, as I said, and Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord. With all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, in everything, set yourself before the Lord and seek His glory and His counsel, His provision. And the temptation to lean on your own understanding to think you've got it, you have things figured out and you don't need God, set that aside. Focus first on the Lord. In your, if your faith is in God... It's a matter of humbling ourselves before Him, trusting that He will lift us up, that He will exalt us. And has He not done that through Christ? I also want you to see in this verse that God is the one who will drive your enemy out who is before you. Uh, The Hebrew word there is shemad. And uh, it can also be translated, be removed. Not just drive out or destroy or annihilate, but be removed. Removed, as in taken out of the way or removed from power. In context, this refers to the Canaanite peoples practicing evil who stand in the way of Israel inheriting the land that God has promised them. The Canaanite peoples with their worship of pagan gods are the power reflecting the rule of the devil and God is going with his peoples in fellowship to remove these people from their from their king and their king from power. So you say, well, pastor, there's still evil in the world. Hasn't gone away. Hasn't been defeated. And my response is, have you read the book of Revelation? (laughs) 
Jesus has won the victory. What is the true promised land? Is it Oskaloosa, Iowa? Is it Pella, Iowa? Is it Limville, Sully? Is that the promised land? Is it, is it the United States of America? What is the promised land? What is the land that you look forward to more than anything else? Is it not the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God? Isn't it Beulah land? God's home? Where we can, we can live with Him in fellowship forever? Is that not the promised land that we desire most of all when Jesus says that I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you? Where? In His kingdom. Where you'll reign with Him forever. Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn that says it well, To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gates that all may come in. You know the chorus, don't you? You want to sing it with me? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He hath done. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, He had done it. He had opened the life gates. And the visible symbol of that is the temple curtain which, which protected the Holy of Holies. No person was allowed to enter in there unless they were consecrated and that they were the high priest. And because Jesus, our high priest, has, has offered himself a, as an atonement for sin, that temple was rent in two, showing that we have access to God, that we can come boldly before Him because of what Jesus has done for us. You know the reason we couldn't go in there before? was because we are sinful. We are under the power of evil. We are under the power of death. We could not enter in because Satan, our accuser, would say to God, these people are sinful. They have no right to come before you as you are holy. And when Jesus died, and His holiness, His righteousness atones for our sin. His blood covers us. When God looks upon us, what does He see? He sees the holiness of His Son and He grants us access into His very presence because Jesus has defeated the power of evil, the power of death, and the power of sin. You know, when children lose parents to death, and we think about our fellowship with God, when parents lose a child, or when, when a wife loses a, a husband, or a husband loses a wife, what remains? What remains? For the Christian, the eternal God remains. When the foundations of your life are shaken, when your life is turned upside down and your world is shattered to pieces, God is there, right there with you. And He is willing and able to carry you through all the problems that cause you to fear 
And he carries you in his everlasting arms. Uncertainty and, and fear assault every one of us in different ways. There are fears that haunt us because of the past. There are fears that impact us here in our present day and concerns about the future. There are fears of doubt caused by sin. There is fear that flows from the power of the curse which causes sickness, sorrow, and death. Yet Jesus responds to all those fears to the power of death by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he asks you and I, do you believe this? If you believe on Jesus, what a joy divine that floods your soul as you trust God as your provider, your Savior. Verse 28 says, So Israel will live in safety alone. Jacob's spring is secure in a land of grain and new wine where the heavens drop their dew. I would think that very few of us, if any, understand what it's like to be hungry. That we understand what it's like to go without, not just for a few days, but for a very prolonged period of time. We're pretty well fed in this nation. Even the poor are taken care of to the mo- for the most part. And when we look at this verse, it's not just speaking to God's provision for His people and the land flowing with milk and honey. It foreshadows again our eternal home with God, where God will provide for us forever and that we will be safe and secure. Hence, we look at God as our Savior. What a joy divine that the Lord is your Savior. Verse 29a uh, and b. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. This is an important statement. You understand that this statement's not made in a vacuum. Israel, they were slaves under Pharaoh in Egypt. They were at, at their beck and call to do their will. God liberated them from slavery. They were slaves to doubt. They did not believe that God could give them the land or that God would enable them to take the land. Like us, sometimes they believe that evil was just too powerful. Those who stand against us are greater than than we are and we are not going to be able to take it. And so 40 years in the wilderness, God leads His people around so that Doubt is driven out and replaced by faith. And God's people had no place to serve as a base of operation from which to advance God's kingdom in this world. And God gave them the faith and the power going with them as a warrior to give them the conquest over evil again. To serve as a base of operations from which to further God's kingdom work in this world. This all looks forward to our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. It is God's power working through His people that liberate the lost from the power of sin. It is God's Spirit that liberates those who are blind to who He is. 
and, and giving them eyes that can see. It is God's power that does all this. And again, I go back to the joy that we have. It's because it's a divine joy. It comes from God. The most important part of our fellowship is not us. It's not about us. It's about God and His great love for us and how He cares for us. He is the number one most important person in our relationship. That's why so many hymns have been sung to this end. Another hymn that you're familiar with, as God is the one who does this, is, O worship the King all glorious above. O gratefully sing His power and His love, our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. There will come a day of rejoicing that will, that will just totally eclipse anything in this world. If you are in Christ Jesus, if, if you are His and He is yours, if you have that fellowship, that faith in Him, then there will be a day when you stand before the Lord of glory and you come into the presence of God and you know that you are received as a member of the family because the Son has set you free. And you are free indeed, not just for a season, but forever, borne up by the everlasting arms of God. What a fellowship. What a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms of God.